Oftentimes it feels like, you know, the big, the big celebration of Christmas and Easter. And Christmas we give, you know, uh, really a month. It's like right after Thanksgiving, let's start celebrating and, and preparing our hearts for the coming of the king who was born in a manger. And then we take some time around this season as well. I hope we've prepared our hearts through our 40 days of prayer. We're going to celebrate the coming of our king on Palm Sunday. And then there's opportunities throughout the week, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, to come and continue what God has done, to, to, to acknowledge what God has done, to... Uh, send his son into the world in the mission that he accomplished in the final week of his life. But we sometimes get it backwards according to what the word gives us. The word only dedicates four chapters to the nativity and the birth of Christ. In fact, the gospel of Mark we're looking at today glances over the nativity and the incarnation. The word gives almost 60% of the emphasis on the final week in the life of Christ. The Gospel of Mark gives three-fifths of all of its accounts and all of the ways that it's pointing us towards what Christ came to accomplish starting on this Palm Sunday. So God is doing something in the final week of the life of Christ that he wants us to pay special attention to. He's uh, counting the story of Palm Sunday and the Passion Week of Christ in all four Gospels. Of course, the resurrection is covered in all four Gospels. And what he's drawing our attention to begins today. And I think it's appropriate for us to slow down as the Word slows down. Mark has been an action-packed Gospel. We've pointed out many times that the Word immediately and now and Jesus on the move and we cover three and a half years very quickly through the snapshots of the Gospel of Mark. But it all slows down today, and it starts with the praise of the coming king. Everything that will follow is after a moment where Jesus receives the praise of his people. In fact, in all of Scripture, in the times where the, the Word gives us an account where people broke out in praise and worship, this might be the most well-documented, which means there's something important happening in the way that the people cry out to Jesus that we're supposed to learn from. And it starts with a song that we've already sung. I don't know the melody that they attached to Psalm 118, but we sang Psalm 118 in preparation of our time in the word, Hosanna. Hosanna. So all of you have worshiped in a messianic expectation this morning. Those of you who sang Hosanna sang a psalm that is set aside for Palm Sunday. And so in you singing that, you have entered into an important moment of worship with Jesus. And so we're going to talk about why Jesus receives the praise and how we learn from this moment in a way that will better inform what we're about to go down, this walk that Noah described in the Passion Week, and how we inform every Sunday that we gather to raise our hands praising Jesus. So we'll start in chapter 11 of the Gospel of Mark. And as you're turning there, I'll give a little bit of context. We left off last week with Jesus teaching about the greatest in the kingdom. The greatest is actually the servant of all. 
after that teaching, as he's leaving Jericho, it says that a blind man is crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the Son of David title that he is giving to Jesus, as his disciples hear that, they say, be quiet. Because the messianic title up until this point was always something Jesus was telling everyone to keep to themselves. This is what many commentators call the messianic secret. But for this man, he allowed the praise, son of David, to be received publicly. And this begins a march that Jesus is on that he predicted with his disciples to go to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission. And I like to start with the, where that story begins because, one, it's good for us to know that Jesus is about to unveil the secret of his Messiah title to anyone who was there to praise him. An important moment in the story of the Passion Week because it is this parade that we're about to study that will set into motion a series of events that will eventually lead to his death. I also like to mention it because by the timing and the sovereignty of God, I was actually just in Jericho. So thank you all for welcoming me back. I got to meet many of you. You said, how was the trip? It was the trip of a lifetime. I'm so glad I got to go. I hope that I can take all of you next time, but we're going to need a lot more buses. <laughs> and it was really interesting to see the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, the road that is being described in John chapter 10 leading in or Mark chapter 10, leading into Mark chapter 11. Jericho is next to the Dead Sea. If you ask me the highlights of my trip, I will have highlights that really brought me closer to the Word of God, brought me closer to worship, had these moments where uh, the team that we were with just wept before the Lord. Those highlights, much more important. And then I have highlights as a man, <laughs> just like to travel and be with people. And one of my highlights as a man was being in the Dead Sea and bobbing like a cork. If you've never been to the Dead Sea, all of you should go and experience what it's like to be completely weightless in the water. And from the Dead Sea, you're in the Dead Sea, you're about 800 feet below sea level. It's a crazy phenomenon. You have incredible air. You're able to go on long hikes and, and, and throughout all of the, the sites that we went and saw and just breathing in this beautiful fresh air from Jericho. And in 20 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem, there's about a 3,000-foot elevation change. So Jesus and his disciples have gone on a 15- to 20-mile journey, setting up the last week of his life, and he has gone up to the, the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, it's one of the best sites that you see the Temple Mount from. So my wise tour guide took us on a road and then he saved the view of Jerusalem until we got to the crest of the Mount of Olives and from there you see this glorious city and it is not uncommon for people to see it for the first time and just be moved sometimes with tears because this city that we're studying today this place where Jesus came to make an offering for sin in the form of his own life is right there and as you look over the Mount of Olives, you can see the Temple Mount where Jesus is about to go from the Mount of Olives to march towards. So with that in your mind's eye, the journey that he went on, the elevation change, the disciples walking with him, now receiving a, a, a person calling him the son of David, 
The stage is being set for Jesus to be received not only as a rabbi, not only as a miracle worker, but as the fulfillment of the expectation of the people, the one who would restore the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, to the glory of David. That is what the expectation that we're studying is today. So with those things in mind, Jesus and his disciples crest over the Mount of Olives, and this is what we read, verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So there's your picture. He's looking out on the city, and he grabs two of his disciples. Now we hear the word disciples. We commonly think of the twelve. But at this point, he's got a number of people who are just traveling with him because it's the Passover. And during the Passover, this is one of three festivals or feasts in the Jewish calendar where people would make a pilgrimage. So all of the cities that we've been studying, Capernaum, Jericho, the places that Jesus has been doing miracles in Galilee, all of these people have a reason now to go to Jerusalem. And there's a ragtag of people that are following Jesus all the way to the feast. He takes two of those people and he sends them on a mission. And this is what he says to them in verse 2. Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So in the Gospel of Mark, he does not mince his words. All details matter. So we start to notice things and ask questions. Uh, the cult that is tied is going to be the fulfillment of what we started our service with in the prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. When Zechariah, describing in the entire book that he wrote, a future shepherd king that would come and that would usher into the nation of Israel the restoration of the kingdom, and he gives a detail of how that king would come. And this is what he says. We've already read it. But he says, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, or a, a baby horse, a baby donkey, the foal of a donkey. Now, with that prophetic image in your mind, we begin to see that Jesus is doing something very calculated. He has sent his disciples to get a tool of travel that he has never used in all of the recorded gospel moments up to this point. He has never done anything but walk. And for the first time in all of his travels, he calls for a donkey. And we also notice that in calling for the donkey, he gives some instructions to his disciples on how to get it, which, if nothing else, we can find somewhat humorous. That he says, you're going to find a donkey. It's going to be tied up. Untie it. If anybody asks, tell them that I need it. And that was supposed to then give them the license to take anything they want. Of course, <laughs> there's times where we read scripture where we apply it very broadly as a principle to live by. And there are times that we look at it as a moment that is very unique to a mission that specific disciples were on. This would be the latter. So I don't want any of you to get the idea that you can start borrowing things in the name of Jesus and then returning them at your will. But it is a strange moment. If we 
gave an updated version of the story, it might say something like, Jesus sent two of his disciples to Nampa and told them to find a work truck with the keys left in it, to jump in the car, to drive away. And as people approached them asking why they were stealing the car, to say that the Lord needed it. And we know that it's peculiar in the same sense because, in fact, people do notice. It says in verse 4, So when they went their way and found the colt, or the donkey, tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it, some of those stood there and said to them, What on earth are you doing <laughs> loosing the colt? And so they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, and those who observed their actions let them go. So the preparations are being made for Jesus to enter into the city of Jerusalem to fulfill the promise of the coming shepherd king. And in the meantime, it seems that God has given grace for those details to unfold appropriately. Then it says in verse 7, Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Now this won't be the main thing that we can notice as a way to draw something from this time in the word for our own lives, but it is worth noticing that Jesus decides once again to employ the help of his disciples. Jesus once again is on a mission that he could seemingly do all by himself, and yet for whatever reason he decides to allow those who will listen to his commands to do sometimes peculiar and odd things to be used by him, and it works. And not only does he send his disciples, but he also taps on the shoulder of the owner of a donkey and says that I need to borrow your goods, and by God's given grace, the person says, if you need it, it's yours. And then it says, when he's about to mount the donkey, they took the coats that they had and prepared a way for him to be comfortable. So part of this story, not the main part of the story, but part of the story is that God is preparing a way for himself to enter into the scene, and once again, he is preparing the way with the help of people. For those of you who have celebrated Palm Sunday for years and years and years, this is a reminder of your life as a disciple, that Jesus uses all sorts of different ways to take what you have in your life, namely your obedience and your open hands, and make it part of his story. If you would be willing to do somewhat odd and perplexing things and give what you have, and when you hear that the Lord could use something for himself, you open your hands and you unloose the colt and you give the coat and you go on the mission. And then it says this, verse 8, And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
It's worth stating again because it is such a shift in the reaction that Jesus has to the praise of people who had hopes and expectations that he was the coming one, the Messiah, the Christ, the King, the one who would restore the kingdom of David and deal with the oppressor of Rome. Up until this point, he strictly warned everyone to say nothing. And Palm Sunday is a shift in the entire narrative because now Jesus is allowing the secret to be out. Hosanna, the word for save us. They look at Jesus as the hope of restoration. They say, blessed is the kingdom of our father David. You're the one. You're the king. And then they say it again, Hosanna on the highest. Some of your Bibles may have a number to a reference in the Bible to Psalm chapter 118, a very important psalm for the expectations of the people that God would one day deliver unto his people salvation. A Hosanna, one that saves, one that would be the blessing of the future kingdom. And any scholarly, Bible-understanding, Torah-believing Jewish person there to celebrate the Passover would be there to celebrate the victory or the deliverance or the salvation of the Passover lamb from, from Egypt when God saved them from the heavy hand of Pharaoh, and they would be there with the expectation of a new salvation, a new Hosanna moment when God would save them once again from a heavy-handed ruler. And if you quote Psalm 118, waving palm branches, which is the picture of victory and honor, laying down your cloaks before the procession of a person riding into Jerusalem, as, as we would lay down a red carpet, you are proclaiming that person to be the king. And Jesus' reaction is to receive their praise. In other accounts of the Gospels describing this moment, of course, not everyone there was there to worship and to praise with expectation. There were there some there to stop the procession. The Pharisee says, don't you hear what these people are saying? Aren't you going to stop them like you normally do? To which Jesus famously says, if these were to be silent, even the rocks would cry out. That the praise of the rightful king of creation, the king of the kingdom of God, will be praised. And this is his moment. And the expectation of the people as was stated, was something akin or similar to what happened in Egypt. They were once slaves, but now they will be free. They are now living under political oppression, but the Hosanna, Savior, blessed is the name of the Lord, King, will set them free. And that is why verse 11 is such a shock to the expectations. Verse 11 says, and Jesus receives it. He says it's undeniable worship. He allows them to praise him as the king and the Messiah. And then what does he do in his triumphal entry? 
he went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. If this moment was a movie, let's say it was a trilogy that maybe you have watched, it would be called The Return of the King. The king has returned to take his rightful seat on the throne. And you would expect the return of the king to be similar to when the king returns. The battle is won, the kingdom is restored, and what do we have in the shift of all expectations? Jesus walks into the temple and just starts looking around. It doesn't say that he gave a sermon. He didn't start teaching. He didn't give a Holy Week invitation to all of the things that would be waiting for those who wanted to follow him into the mission. He observed the things that were happening in the temple. He noticed that the hour was late. He had just gone on a 15-mile hike uphill, and he says, I think I'm going to call it a night, and he goes back to Bethany to where he was staying. Close scene, happy Palm Sunday. That's the story. I'm grateful that we're in Mark because Mark is the only gospel that tells us that there's a, there's a time of rest where he actually leaves the temple before he starts cleansing it. I think it's worth pointing out, especially thinking through the expectations of what people were hoping salvation meant. And I think this is the moment where we shift our study of Scripture from the history of the moment and the context and trying to draw clues as to what Jesus was up to into maybe something that we're supposed to draw for our own lives. How common it is for worship and praise to have expectations attached to them. Sunday morning is a time where you are blessed because you're in the presence of God and the word goes out and we grab hold of it thinking that it will be exactly how we want it to be. We have a list of things that we could put under the name Hosanna to be saved for. We live in a time not unlike this time or most times in history where Hosanna could be applied to the heavy hand of a strange time of government. We look around, not unlike this time, and we, we think, save us, Hosanna, to a strange time of religion. And yet, Jesus has an altogether different mission than what the people wanted him to have. So I want to I glance at the story once again with three lens in mind that you actually find in the story that give us, I hope, such a secure foundation on the king that we're actually worshiping. A foundation to say to him, whatever you're doing, in whatever way you are the king of the kingdom and leading it and guiding it for our time as we look back and we look forward, we can absolutely trust you and love you and praise you still. The first lens to look at the story through is the lens of sovereignty. The story is actually odd if you don't think through Jesus as part of the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty is just a fancy theological word for the simple reality that God is in control. That God is not taken aback by the circumstances of the world, 
as though he's on plan B or plan C or plan D. And all of his attempts at salvation and rule and reign and future redemption and cleansing of the earth are always being edited based off how humanity is responding. God is in control right now of the circumstances of our world. And Jesus the King is a king who is in control. His kingdom and his reign didn't begin on Palm Sunday. That's when he let the secret out. He was in control of the narrative of when he would allow the moment to happen up until this point. But that doesn't change the reality that he was the king of kings forever. And as we read the story, we find great comfort in all of the details that Mark shares with us to show us just how in control Jesus was. It says he sent two of the disciples to go into a village, and he says, as soon as you find it, you're going to find a cult. He knew exactly what he needed to fulfill the Zechariah promise of the shepherd king. He knew exactly where it would be, and he also knew what would happen, and the word in response to complete the mission. People will ask, this is what you say, their hearts have been prepared. How? Different answers can be given. Uh, this is probably the same little village where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived, village where his reputation probably preceded him, because if you'll recall, one of his last miracles up until this point was raising Lazarus from the dead. You, you raise a man from the dead, you become a, his best friend, I promise you that. <laughs> And word gets out around a village that this man should be listened to. If he needs something, give it to him. Do we have the same confidence in the Lord today? If he can raise life from the grave, he can have, a, he can have my donkey. And he is sovereign in the way that this whole week will play out. He didn't only say, this is where you'll find the donkey, this is how you'll give it to me, this is how you'll bring it, this is how the scriptures must be fulfilled. I will ride in in a beautiful uh, 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 fulfillment of the promise of the shepherd king. To celebrate the Passover dinner, he told his disciples, you're going to see a man with a pot on his head, follow him to an upper room. Because he knew exactly where he needed to be, he knew the details to get there, and while in the upper room, he was able to stay in control, lest we think that he was betrayed unbeknownst to him. In the upper room, he said, one of you will betray me. And then in a further fulfillment of the word of God in a way only the author could know, he quoted Zechariah in the upper room to say, and by the way, it's not just Judas. When the shepherd is struck, all of the sheep will scatter that the shepherd king would be betrayed. And he knew that one of the disciples, one of the main disciples, would betray him three times before a rooster crowed. He knew that he would be turned over and beat and scourged. And he knew, lest we forget, as the disciples did, and we sometimes do, maybe not theologically, but practically in our heart, he knew he would rise again on the third day. Jesus is a king in control, and we must read all of this in the historical moment and in our moment now through the lens of the sovereignty of God. The second lens that we can read this through 
is the lens of humility. It's by no accident that the sermon that we spent time in the Word drawing out of the, the Gospel of Mark up until this moment was a question of who is the greatest. And that's always a question when you start talking about someone riding in to take a throne, isn't it? All questions of authority are questions of greatness and glory, questions of power, questions of wealth and riches. And it's important that we understand who our king is. Because to worship him, you have to trust him. To follow him and to obey his commandments, you have to believe that he's good. And you also should choose your king wisely. Because the idea that you are choosing between Jesus or nothing is clearly false. If Jesus is not your king, if Jesus was not the king of these people, if they were looking for someone else, surely you will find someone that becomes the object of your palm branches, that becomes the recipient of your cloak. We hate to admit that because it takes a lot of humility to admit that we have a king. Later in the week, Pilate will stand before a crowd and say, this is your king. What do you want me to do with your king? And the angry mob will shout back, we have no king except, well, for Caesar, he's our king. (laughs) We have no king except Caesar, the emperor. We live in a culture that says there is no God. Well, except the God of your success and the God of your self-identity and the God of your sexuality, and the God of your materialism, and the God of your wealth. Everyone has a king that they serve. Here's the beautiful thing about Palm Sunday. We as believers lay our cloaks down, and we lift up our hands as visible palm branches in the air to say, our king is the humble king. Why do we say that? Well, one, the Zechariah prophecy, and now the, the living fulfillment of it, He's coming on a donkey with no better than a ragtag bunch of fishermen and peasants. Mostly when you're looking for the welcoming of a great person, a great person of honor or a king, you can see the visible image of their greatness in the kind of parade that receives them. I can't help but think of one visible king of sorts, let's call him the king of soccer, after the World Cup this summer, and Leone Messi came back from the World Cup, and he gets to come home with the trophy in his hand back to Argentina, and there were a million people waiting for him in the streets to praise him as a modern-day god, and they partied, and they sang, and they did their, their blessing of the team, and they just received the shared glory of the victory for days and days and days. Choose your king wisely. He's a king because he has the undeniable talent of kicking a round ball into a net. It's amazing. (laughs) I was recently in Africa, the Congo. And while we were there, they were preparing for the Pope, who is a king of sorts. And my goodness, what it would be to be a Pope. (laughs) the amount of preparation that went into his arrival. Everywhere he was going to step his foot was going to be the nicest place in Africa, I assure you that. 
They were repaving the runway that his plane would land on. They were getting ready for the, the place that he was going to speak because when a king of this world comes, we lift him as high as possible and we give him as much honor to, to give him the praise that is worthy of greatness. And yet, what does the king of the universe get? The king of the universe gets a donkey, some secondhand clothes, some broken branches, a few hundred people. And it is a picture that is both real and theological to say this. In order for us to know God, he sends his son into the world, and his son comes from the highest, Hosanna in the highest, from the heavens. And he comes into a manger to the lowest. And I'm so grateful for my trip to Israel because now I have this visible and physical remembrance of the journey of Palm Sunday that Jesus took. You know, you never really put it in my mind's eye. You're just thinking he's walking down the street. The Mount of Olives is about 300 feet above the Temple Mount. And he's got to go down into the Valley Kidron to get to it. So he's got to take a very steep ride on an untamed beast. A reminder of his sovereignty. He's in control even of the wild animals. And this untamed donkey with palm branches in his face is walking down a street, and I'm going to put it on the screen. Now, this may not be the exact street. This does it no justice. This little path that we took took us from the Mount of Olives down past the Garden of Gethsemane and up the valley towards the Temple Mount. And it was so steep, my shin still hurt. <laughs> it was this steep, and I included what it says right here. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent... Grateful that Luke included the word descent because it is now a visible and physical picture of what Jesus' triumphal entry was. The high, the lifted up, the king of glory must come low. And so now we put these two lens together. I want to comfort, I want to lift up our hearts, and I want us to praise and worship Jesus for those two reasons. He is sovereign and in control of this moment right now. Sometimes we think that worship and praise is our doing. Like, well, we, we got up and we made it to church and we could have put on our Sunday best and we're, we're feeling good and we're looking good and I really praise the Lord well today. You did. Because God gave you the grace and appointed the time and the boundaries of your dwelling that you would search for him and find you and know and reveal to you that he is not far from you. As soon as you turn to him, you realize that your whole life was preparation to meet him and to praise him and to offer your little goods and services to him. And with humility, we receive him. The lens of humility must be received so that you can reflect it yourself, lest you think that you have to somehow meet him at the high places. Everywhere we went in Israel, it was like, well, here's a high place somebody used to worship. Here's a high place where St. Carmel or Elijah called down the, the prophets and, and slaughtered them. And, and here's another high place. And everything, all of these holy moments happen where people come up and they have a spiritual moment on a mountain. Because there's something in the human psyche that says, i got to lift myself up to, to meet God. You're going nowhere near his holiness. There is nothing you can do today to lift yourself anywhere near God. Your only hope is that the king would descend. 
that the king would come from on high and meet you in the lowest of the low, which is the good news gospel preached this morning, that no matter where you're at, in the lowest of the low, physically, emotionally, spiritually, you can lift up a palm branch knowing the king is coming to you. You don't have to go to the king. And with that in mind, we look at one final call to help us understand when expectations sometimes meet these mysterious twists in the plots of life, when worship turns into confusion, when hope turns into waiting. We looked at his sovereignty, we looked at his humility, and now we are reminded of his victory. They wanted salvation, they wanted victory. And remember, it's such a unique timing of God when all of this is happening. Passover week. Because at Passover, you look back to Egypt and you remember his victory. And you look forward to the coming king and hope in his victory. And so to do that, you have to believe, one, that God is already victorious. In fact, that's given to us again, smuggled in by the gospel of Luke into our sermon in Mark. Because he says, as they were going and descending down the mountain, the people were praising him with their branches, with their clothes, with their, with their psalm songs. And they were doing it because of all of the mighty works they had seen. This is why we go all the way back to the beginning and remember all of the people that Jesus was healing along the way. Follow me. Be a witness. We remember him calming a storm and healing paralytic, casting out demons, and people are hearing and they're seeing and they realize that he is not a future victor. He's already a victor. He's already conquered the spiritual realm. He's already tamed the creative realm. He's already shown himself wise in the, the realm of the, the word of God. And so as they wait for the future victory, they wait in the confidence that God has already moved on their behalf. And so again, for our day, we find ourselves in the exact same future and present moment of worship. We are going to worship Jesus because of what he did to offer himself as a living sacrifice on Passover 2,000 years ago, and the victory is won. Sin has been dealt with on the cross of Christ. The grave has been defeated. Victory in Jesus. We celebrate it year after year after year, and we ourselves still cry Hosanna, realizing that the fullness of redemption has not arrived. There are still things in this sanctuary right now that you cry Hosanna for. Hosanna for marriages, Hosanna for the prodigal children, Hosanna for the lost culture that we live in, Hosanna, save our time, Lord. And so we remember the past victories. That, of course, we don't have to go 2,000 years in the, in the past to find. There are victories of saved marriages. There are victories of returned prodigal children. There are victories of saved souls all throughout here. And we proclaim today a both and, past and, present and future worship because some of you came here this morning worshiping for what God has done in your life already. Thank you, Jesus, for the mighty works that I have already seen. And so now, 
as you go back to Bethany and you wait for the future salvation, you wait in the confidence that God is in control. That he comes to you right where you're at. You're not trying to get his attention. You're not trying to clean yourself up so he would finally be your king. The sovereignty and the humility of the king reminds you of the victory that will soon be ours. And lest I fail any one of you by not inviting you into this celebration, if you don't know Jesus as king, the message of his sovereignty and control for you is that you came to hear an invitation right now. There's no accident that your friend or your neighbor or your phone's pop-up ad got you to sit underneath the presentation of the beautiful kingship of Christ. He's not the king of Jerusalem. He's not the king of Israel. He is the king of his people. Anyone who has put their trust, their faith, given him their life, he now is the shepherd king. He now cares for them, loves them, lays down his life for them, forgives them of their sins, gives them newness of life and a purpose and a mission to join him in the future redemption of the world. Praise God if that's you. If you've never been invited in, accept him as king today. I can tell you one of the Hosanna moments that will be answered right now is if you say, Hosanna, save me from my sin. You can be saved in the moment that you cry out. Hosanna on the highest will come to you in the depth of your sin. He will descend into your heart and he will give you newness of life. So happy Palm Sunday, everybody. Amen.